All right, well, Heavenly Father, thank You for the power and the authority of Your Word. I thank You, Father, that it, it changes, it transforms like nothing else can. And I thank You for the gift of Your Spirit that You would help us today, give us each ears to hear what the Spirit has to say to the church. And I ask You, Lord, that You would open our, the understanding of our hearts, open our eyes to grasp these principles, and most importantly, God, to live them out. And I just ask you, Spirit of God, be here in te- as our teacher. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. I remember when I was a youth pastor way back in the day when I was a young guy. That's almost too far for me to remember. But I do remember this particular incident in which I was discipling a young man. And to disciple this young man by the name of Tom, uh, I would take Tom to the, uh, to the racquetball court at the University of... Delaware, and um, I just felt, you know, before we get into the Word, there needed to be a little humility as we approach it, so that's why I played him. And, uh, and so I would I'd put it to him. Uh, even this, well, I was young back then, but uh, it, it, it was, I enjoyed it a lot, he enjoyed it a lot, awesome. Uh, but I ran into a, a problem with, with Tom and trying to disciple him. I regularly found that he wasn't getting into the Word. I regularly found that um, the different things that I encouraged him to do, he wasn't doing. And, and, and I said, Tom, look, dude, you are a, you're a leader in this teen group, this huge group of about 10 kids. And you're very influential. And if you're not going to follow Christ you know, just and be sold out, it's going to make it harder for them. And I'm going to tell you this, that if you follow Christ, people look to you and they're going to say, you know what? I'm seeing it work in him. Maybe it can work in me. And I challenged him and challenged him. And, and you know, I asked him questions. He's, he's doing fine, doing fine, doing fine. And then here is what I find out. Because I get a call from his mom, who is not a Christian. Get a call, and she doesn't go to her church. Get a call from her. And she says, you know what? Um, Tom is in jail right now. Tom is 17 years old. He has a driver's license. And every now and then, I'm in North Delaware, okay, and he and his... A cousin who was also in the group would go down to Rehoboth Beach, which is about two hours away, and they would kind of spend the weekend and um, just have a great time at grandparents' place, cottage down there. Well, he get, he ended up in jail because Tom had a secret life. Tom would get drunk. I had no clue about this. Tom, that particular weekend, had gotten drunk, drove around with his cousin in his car with a bat in their hand knocking mailboxes down. And they got caught. They knocked one too many down. The police caught them and threw him in jail. Uh, He got out with bail. And I sat down with Tom and discovered Tom had a secret life that I never knew about. And I'm telling you this story because when I found out that Tom was not telling me the truth, at that moment... I chose, I will not believe anything that he says. Because a principle that I began to learn at that time was love is freely given, but trust is earned. Now I'm sharing this with you because uh, when we discover someone to have an issue with lying, not telling the truth, it makes it really hard for us to believe that person, doesn't it? 
And just by a show of hands, how many of you have ever encountered a person like that and you discovered them to be a liar? And it was really hard for you to trust them at that point. And it, it may have taken a long time to build that trust up. And these are some things that I have tried to instill in my children. You know, if you're going to lie to me as your dad, we will not trust you. And we will limit your freedoms because we can't trust you. So if you want us to give you more freedoms, help us trust you by always, always telling the truth. Now here's why I'm sharing this. If the Bible has non-truths or errors in them, and therefore we would say that what is written is not always true, we would have to say that at points God has lied to us. I want you to think about this. This, this, I'm, I'm trying to characterize this as a reality check because we looked at four different views last, last week. The liberal view, the neo-orthodox view, the concept view of inspiration, and the plenary or verbal inspiration or full inspiration of Scripture. All, all four of those except the last one believes that the Bible has error in it. And I'm telling you that if we are willing to accept that the Bible has some error in it, then God has not completely told us the truth. And at some points, there's not just error, but we would have to say, this is wrong, and therefore God was not able to tell me the truth through this human author. And I now begin to wonder, what other parts in this book also have error and cannot be trusted. And I mentioned to you last week a gentleman I found online because I was doing a study uh, on presenting in the era of apologetics the prophecies against Tyre specifically in Ezekiel 26. And the title of his article was um, Ezekiel 26, A Failed Prophecy. And he claimed to be a Christian, came to claim to believe in the gospel. And I challenged him and I said, my friend, if you are going to say that the Bible has error in it, you have stepped on this slippery slope. And, and maybe you can try and convince me that you truly do believe in Jesus, etc., etc. But here's what you will find, because history has borne this out, that your disciples will not. Eventually down the road of generations of Christians, they will not accept the Bible as true. And God will hold you accountable for this. And we know this is true because we have seen this very thing take place in many, 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 many colleges that were founded on biblical principles and the inerrancy of Scripture, and they do not hold to that today. Um, Colleges, seminaries... Princeton Seminary, um, you name it, many, many schools. And, and we need to realize that if we are going to give an inch, we are conceding a mile in this, in this issue. We must hold to this. Because once we say the Bible is God's word breathed through fallible man, and fallible man's hands got a hold of that pen and wrote something that was fallible, and errant, that is, having errors, it would be proper and right for us to question the Word of God. And I'm not sure that we can do that. In fact, I'm convinced that we can't do that. I want you to turn with me now to a passage in 1 Corinthians 7. 
Because this is the passage that people point to and say, here's an example of man's words alongside God's words. And therefore, as we read through Scripture, we have to distinguish what is actually God's Word. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and I'm going to read to you verses 8 through 11. This is not found in your notes, so write this passage down. 1 Corinthians 7, 8 through 11. And Paul's writing to the Corinthians saying, Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, It is good for them to stay unmarried as I am, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Now look at this very next verse. To the married, I give this command. Not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. And so as the argument goes, they say, hang on a second here, Paul is making a very clear distinction between what he says and what the Lord says. And therefore, we have to concede, so the argument goes, that there are some things that are human and some things that are divine. And it is now our job to find out what is the divine, except that is God's word, and what is human, and just take that with and weigh it as we would a man's word. And I'm going to challenge this, that understanding of this portion of scripture. Because what I think Paul is clearly saying is that concerning this issue of marriage and divorce, in Jesus' earthly ministry, and that's who he means by the Lord, and you can do a word study on the Lord, and you will discover this, but when he says, the Lord says, not I, he is simply referring to Jesus' earthly ministry. When Jesus was ministering on earth, passages such as Matthew 19 are are what he is referring to here. And in Matthew 19, Jesus has a discussion with the Pharisees who they want to know if it's right for a man to divorce his wife. And Jesus goes back to creation and he presents an argument, a very sound argument. And this is what Paul is drawing from. And that is why he says that even he, he again, he says, I give this command. To the married, I give this command. Well, not I, but the Lord. Okay, He's not distinguishing between human commands and divine commands. He is simply separating what he has just shared in verses 8 and 9 with what Jesus shared in his earthly ministry. So what Jesus, excuse me, what Paul shared in verses 8 and 9 is not just Paul's opinion... It is an encouragement not to marry, and we later find out why, because of the present crisis, which which was temporary. Paul is not saying don't marry, because that would contradict 1 Timothy 4, where he says there are those that say don't marry. There are those who say don't eat this or drink this, and he says no, 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 no. These are doctrines of demons. Paul's not backing that. So I think in a fair treatment of this passage, Paul is saying, verses 10 and 11, this is what Jesus said in his earthly ministry. And I am giving you this command. But it comes directly from Jesus. But that does not lessen what he is saying elsewhere in this chapter. Okay? So once we understand that, 
I, I hope that closes this door. What Paul says as an inspired writer of Scripture is God-breathed and therefore brings authority. Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. Jesus is being tempted. Again, that one's not in your notes as well. Matthew 4, 4. Jesus is being tempted after 40 days in the wilderness, immediately after his water baptism. And the devil comes after this fast and prayer and time in the wilderness. And Matthew records three temptations. And in the first one, the devil comes to him and says, if you really are the Son of God, this is kind of almost a reflection way back to Genesis 3. Did God really say? So if you really are the Son of God, then take these stones and make them into bread. And Jesus had been fasting 40 days. And I'm going to have to tell you, I fasted for a long time, but I've never reached 40 days myself. So I don't know what that would be like. I can only imagine, though, how hard that would be after 40 days. And Jesus does not respond, wow, wow, what an awesome idea. I, I think I'm tracking you on this great idea out in this wilderness. I can break my fast, but no, here's what he says. And he quotes from Deuteronomy 8, man does not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth. What words then proceed from the mouth of God? Where do we find those? Any clue? Where do we find these words that only proceed from the mouth of God? Hello! Absolutely! Only from the Bible, the scriptures, the 66 books that we have here. And it is in here that we find the words of God. Now, Jesus goes on and he demonstrates this because he continues on the other two occasions to oppose Satan (coughs) by saying, (coughs) by quoting rather, from the book of Deuteronomy. Because Jesus is is emphasizing these are the words of God, but as I'm going to get to later, it it also is because he is using Scripture's power and authority. That's where I'm going with this, obviously. Seeing that, I mean, that's the title of the the lesson here today, right? And so, I, I believe that if we're truly honest with the Bible, we would have to conclude, therefore, that Scripture equals the word of God. So therefore, to disobey or obey scripture is tantamount and equal to disobeying or obeying God himself. So do you, do you see this? Very, very important. It is not that the Bible contains the word of God. It is that the Bible or the scriptures are the word of God. And as I mentioned last week, that if, we, if we're not willing to accept this, and we find ourselves in the position of judge, what is God's word in this book and what is not, we're going to have a difference of opinion. What actually is the word of God? And by doing this, and by the way, that is what the Jesus Seminar has done. Very popular in the 90s as it moved into the 21st century. A bunch of liberal scholars getting together 
Um, but they were not just liberal, they were extremely liberal, supposing to represent true theology of their day, and by no means didn't, by no means did. The, the truth, though, is when you do this, when you sit down and say, hey, let's get all get together and let's find out what really did Jesus say in the Gospels, which is what their purpose was, then you place yourself as a judge and therefore above the Scriptures. And my question is, who has more authority, the voice of God or the voice of man? The voice it, of God. It must be the voice of God. We cannot ever find ourselves in the place of saying, okay, this is the word of God and this is not. Now, when it comes to prophecy, in present day prophecy, let me, let me just first say this, that all prophecy, excuse me, all scripture is prophecy, but not all prophecy is scripture. Correct. Okay? As a matter of fact, not even all the words of God are scripture. Now, we find this in, in the book of John, and in, <clears throat> excuse me, John 21, 25, <laughs> excuse me, it's recorded, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. And he says in the previous, chap yeah, previous chapter, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written. Selectivity here. And John is admitting this. Selectivity. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is his purpose for the gospel according to John. And he tells us right now, there's so much more that Jesus did and said that's not recorded here. And that would venture to say that Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not record. Now my purpose in saying this is, we, we are, as we look at prophecy, even in prophecy we weigh it with scripture. Is this a prophetic word from the Lord or is it not? We weigh it with scripture. Why? Because scripture, God's word, is that which contains the highest authority to judge anything and everything. Not man's decisions, not man's voice, but God's voice. Okay? I want to read something to you. I'm not going to tell you who this is. You'll come up afterwards looking at my, my paper here to see who it is. But this gentleman has written a book. I'm not even going to tell you what the name of the book is. But I got this email, and this is what it says. Making bold declarations is not just being positive. You are actually declaring victory, declaring success, declaring new levels. Okay. <laughs> and he goes on. As you speak in faith, you will be propelled higher than ever before by the words you speak. Mm, I'm starting to have some trouble here. Um, words are like seeds. <coughs> when you speak something out loud, you give life to what you are saying. That allows it to take root, and if you keep saying it, eventually it becomes your reality. <laughs> now I'm going to have to go back on this recorder and erase that, bro. Okay, speak words of life and hope today. 
Now, let's understand, in Proverbs, it says the tongue has the power of life and death. But what does that mean? Does that mean that my words that I'm speaking right now have inherent power or even authority to change things? Or is it simply that my words have the power of influence so that... Cole, as you're listening to my words right now, uh, you have a decision to make. Am I going to believe what Mike is saying, or am I not? And as I share what I believe to be a truth, you then make the decision, you know what, I think this is truth, and I'm going to apply it to my life. And as you apply it to your life, you find it works. Okay, as Mike was giving us an understanding of this passage, I think it was a, a good understanding. As I'm applying principles of interpretation, it works. As I'm living it out, it works. Because God word, God's word always works. And, and so, yes, and it's transforming his life. Now, not because of me, but because of God's word. But Cole has made a decision whether he is going to follow what I say or not. My words have influence. And here is the distinguishing factor. Our words have influence, but God's word inherently has power and authority. But what this author just told me was that, no, 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 no. Not only do God's words have power and authority inherent in them, but so do your words. Now, I'm sorry, but that is a scary thought to me. My words were not spoken and brought reality into existence. Only God's word did. And we read about that in the book of Genesis, don't we? God spoke, and it happened. I can't speak, and it happens. I can speak and I might be able to influence my children so that they start obeying properly. Awesome, I love that. But my words are not inherently authoritative and powerful. God's words and God's words alone have that authority and power. And so what I want to do is I want us to see just how powerful and authoritative God's words are Whereas our words just have influence. And you make the decision whether you're going to uh, listen to them, think about them, do them. But there is a spiritual dynamic that is beyond our understanding that I want to be very careful to not give you this impression that we can truly wrap our minds around this. Any more than we can truly wrap wrap our minds around the full extent of Christ's love. Though we're told to know this love that transcends understanding. That's an interesting concept. So, turn with me then to Hebrews chapter 4. Let's delve into this. Let's unwrap this and, and, and I believe that as we do, we're, we're going to see the power of life in the Word of God. How many of you have ever been in the midst of such heat and humidity that you were so thirsty <laughs> that you were ready to pass out? Mm-hmm. Or maybe some of you did. Donna, did you ever pass out or, or almost? I okay. yeah. yeah. I remember a time which you were out on the lot and you were doing work and you, you were gone. And that's happened to me a couple of times. But, you know, it happens to you a couple of times and you, you learn. 
and you realize, I've got to get out of the, the sun right now. And when you're in the sun or out, if you, when you're in the sun as opposed to being under shade, it can make a huge difference. The other difference, of course, is how much water you're taking in. But let's say you're at that point and you have, uh, you're, you're like inches from heat exhaustion, okay? And heat exhaustion, you know, you don't just go inside, drink a glass of water, and you're all better. You get nauseous. You are probably laid out for the rest of the day. You feel terrible. Uh, you have headaches, etc., uh, etc. Et so I don't want to go there because I need to work the rest of the day. And it's like 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and I am spent. Now, maybe you've been in that situation. Now, if you have, you realize that you need two things. You need shade and you need water. You don't go inside, you don't drink tea. I love tea, especially sweet tea. Actually, there's no such thing as non-sweetened tea. I'm convinced of this. All tea is sweet tea. Um, amen? Okay. Sweet tea. You ever have a, a, a waitress? You want sweet tea or unsweet tea? Is that one word? Sweet tea, unsweet tea? And uh, there's no such thing as unsweetened tea, Okay. There is only sweetened tea, but you don't even want sweetened tea at that time. Uh, you don't even want soda. There's just too much sugar. You want water, agua. And when you have that water, I mean, you're desperate for it. You're desperate for shade. You're desperate for water. This is where I want to bring us that I think Scripture expounds to us with such richness that God's Word is like that shade and water to that man or woman who was on the verge of heat exhaustion. And especially if you, if you have ever had heat exhaustion, you, you can't have anything else. You have to have shade. You have to have water. And God created this way, us this way. And so here we, here we find, as we're beginning to un- uh, unwrap this concept of the, God's word having power and authority, it says in verse 12, Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It is living and active. What does that convey to you? God's word being living and active. What does that convey to you? That, it, that it's not yeah. dead. Okay, it good. It's not dead. It, it doesn't lose its potency over time. Okay, great. Even though this was written over 2,000 years ago, it still has life and power. It still applies to us today. It's not some dead book. It's not the dead oracles of God. They are still living. Okay, so somebody else, living and active. Yes, it, Leanne. It applies to us. It applied to our parents' generation in, in the 14th okay. century. It's appropriate for every generation. Okay. It is for us cross-generationally and cross-culturally. Even though this book was written within the context of a culture... The principles that God is speaking to us still apply regardless of the culture that we live in. Now, don't get me wrong. To an extent, there is a culture within this book 
that we need to live in. There is a culture such as, if you were to study culture anthropology, then you would discover that religion falls under this concept of culture. And I don't want to run with this too far, but when we're talking about how we are to worship God, Scripture does give us very clear guidelines. He doesn't just say, worship me however you want. He never says that. Now, that type of worship may change because we made sacrifices in the old. Christ, of course, is the fulfillment of all of those sacrifices. We use the temple, uh, but now Christ is the fulfillment of all of that. But the concepts that we find in old and new concerning worship, they would be encapsulated in this concept of culture, but we, we are still asked to apply this to our lives. So there, I'm not saying we need to strip away uh, entirely culture from the Bible because you can't do that. There is a culture and a worldview that comes with it. All right? So it is cross-cultural. It is cross-generational. It is for all time. It endures forever. Though man's words fall to the ground, God's words endure forever. Um, it is living. In other words, it brings... It itself is living and it, it's uh, it's... It has life in itself. Okay? If something is living, that means there's life in it. And when it enters something that is non-living, it makes that which is non-living alive. Okay? So it actually brings life to us. And we're going to get into that a little bit later. The, The power of the gospel. So it is also active. Who has... um, Maybe a more literal translation of this passage. What version do you have in ASB? Mm-hmm. What does it say? The Word of God is? 4.12 For the Word of God is, oh, it says the same, living and active. Okay. And that means that it has the ability to, are you ready for this profound concept? It has the ability to do stuff. Okay. And through the Word of God, it empowers us to do stuff. That is, stuff for God's kingdom. Alright? So, it it is even able to discern the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Which, by the way, most of the time we can't even do. Just saying. Most of the time we can't even discern our thoughts and intents. What are the motives in your heart? Many times, our motives are deceptive. We think our motives are so pure, but as the Spirit of God takes the Word and starts stirring things up and, and sifting them, we realize, oh my goodness, there are some wrong motives. And the reason why I'm serving is because I'm looking for a platform for people to think highly of me. Man, even my serving has selfishness in it. The Word of God is living and active and it can discern your thoughts and intents and the motives and all that stuff that's going beneath the surf, going on beneath the surface. So that's the power of the Word of God. And because it is God's Word, it has authority. Okay? It has authority. When God speaks, if the earth itself trembles and all creation trembles at His Word, the demons will tremble as well. That is the authority of God's Word. Okay? Alright. Um, Psalm, Psalm 1. 
Turn there with me. Very, very rich psalm. And in view of what this psalm actually says, I'm going to encourage you, if you can, memorize this psalm. If you're looking for scripture passages to memorize, this is an awesome one. Now, okay, all of God's word is awesome, all right? But I'm going to tell you this, this particular psalm will really encourage and help you. It says, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And that includes, by the way, Leviticus. Just saying. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, whatever he does prospers. When we lived in Phoenix, Arizona, um, I can remember driving down into the valley. There's some mountains around Phoenix. And driving into the valley, I can remember looking around and laughing to myself because I had had my own lawn business, but I had never, ever seen this type of landscaping before. This type of landscaping used white rock and red rock. Take your pick. Um... Many of them, most of them, did not have grass. They used rock. The way you maintained your lawn was with Roundup. Do you know what Roundup is? Yeah, that kills grass. That kills weeds. And the beauty of the landscaping was that your whole front yard was white rock. Or red lava rock. That was your landscaping. Now, some people had grass in the back, and it was either dead, or they managed to be able to... Uh, have it irrigated or, or you know a sprinkler back there the, the grass could possibly live but back in, in Phoenix you would, you would hit temperatures between 115 and 120 pretty regularly you would get out of the pool and the water on your skin would evaporate so fast it would feel cool you would feel cool stepping out but you would feel the intensity of the heat as well it's pretty hard to describe um, you can truly fry an egg on the sidewalk or on the hood of a car, especially if it's black. Um, it, it, it was very hot. But here's what I discovered. I thought this was interesting. One of the friends of mine had an acre on his property. And he irrigated, because he had a horse or two horses, whichever, in his backyard. And he was in a neighborhood that irrigated in a way that I'd never seen before. Their yard was sunk about four inches into the ground. So it would, you know, where the um, the fences were, it stood on a, a little mound of about four inches. And the reason for this is to irrigate, they would have when it was your turn, and they would do this once a week. Water would come into your backyard, and it would flood your backyard of about four inches of water. And so, yeah, you could go swimming in your backyard. Um, if you were a really short person anyway. And so it would eventually, those four inches of water would percolate down about 12 inches into the ground. And I asked my friend, I said, why is it that you guys 
flood your backwater, do you have to do this like a couple of times a week? He said, no, absolutely not. Just once a week. And his grass was very green. And his, his, so his horse had plenty of grass to eat because it grew very well. And I said, I don't understand. He said, Mike, most times when you, when you irrigate or use, have a sprinkler system, it only goes about four inches or so down into the ground. And your roots, the roots of the grass, will only grow as far as the water percolates down into the soil. So if your soil is saturated with 12 inches of water, how deep do you think the roots of your grass will go? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I wasn't a stupid guy. I guessed right. I, I'm going to guess 12 inches. Uh, bingo. So when he would irrigate, His grass roots would go down 12 inches. It would take well over a week for that amount of water to, for the sun to evaporate water down to the 12th inch. And so the grass always had water. However, those that used a a lawn sprinkler system had roots that only went down four or so inches into the ground. And so they had to water it regularly. This is the same concept in the Word of God. When it uses this word meditate, I'm going to tell you that means allow the Word to percolate down into your spirit, your soul. To to move beyond just the intellectual grasp of it. So that as you meditate on it, you are allowing the Spirit of God to to change you. Um, when Jesus wrote to the seven churches in Revelation, he would say, um, he would challenge the church, hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. The Spirit of God. It is not just words that are being spoken. But when God speaks, the Spirit of God is speaking with those words, moving with those words. This is why it's living and active. And our words are not. Our words only have influence. But God's Word is coupled with the Spirit of God. And it's the Spirit of God that then applies the Word and takes that Word. And as we are meditating on it, as we are allowing the Word to percolate down in our spirit and soul, then that's when... The Spirit of God is taking His Word and applying it. And we're ruminating on it, chewing on it, thinking about it, thinking deeply on it. I'm going to challenge you, if you're just simply used to reading the Word, stop and take time to meditate on the Word and drink deeply. Now, I'm using this analogy of irrigation because... That's kind of what the psalmist does. He uses a slightly different form of irrigation, and he talks about a tree that's planted by streams of water. And that tree will always be able, through its root system, be able to uh, bring into its uh, its trunk the nutrients and, and the sustenance from that water, and so it will always produce fruit. Its leaves will not wither. I'm assuming it's an evergreen and he then concludes very in a more application-oriented way. He says, and whatever you do will prosper. He moves, aw- uh, uh, he moves away from the metaphorical. You will prosper. This is the very same command that 
God gave to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1. And he, he, he challenges him again using the same word, meditate on the word of God. Let it be on your lips. Because it's as we meditate on it that we can do it. We know what it says. We want God's word and God's commands to be so written on our hearts And this is done by the Spirit of God. That's why in the New Covenant, God says, I'm going to write my words on your heart. Because now the Spirit of God is doing that. But when we do that, then when, when God's Word is written on our hearts, it then becomes a ref... Obedience to God begins to become a reflex reaction in our life. Do you know what a reflex is? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm sure you've heard of it when you cross your legs and you, you hit your knee just right and your leg springs up and hits the doctor. Then that you've got good reflexes. What that is, though, is it's a nerve that does not go all the way to your brain, registers in your brain, and then sends the message, kick the doctor. No, instead, it only goes to your spinal cord and back. And that's why it's so quick. Boom, boom. And... and You also, we use the term a knee-jerk reaction. You're familiar with that idiom. That's what this is talking about, okay? That it happens almost immediately. You don't even have to think about it. When the Word of God is written on your heart, you almost don't have to think about it. It becomes your default response in life. I mean, that's that's what I want. I don't want to have to constantly think, okay, what, what does God's Word say on this? Should I do this? Should I not? Do I really love this guy in this situation even though he's doing me wrong? How do I... What do I say? And, and I, I want my reflex response to be what Christ has shown me. Love my enemies. Don't hold a grudge. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And as I've meditated on this, and I've thought about it, maybe even hundreds of times, it becomes your default response in life. Is that beautiful or what? That that we would respond to life situations, not in the old man knee-jerk reaction, but in the new man knee-jerk reaction. God's word, God's ways, Christ's ways, Christ's commands, written on our heart, responding to life situations as Christ himself would. That's what I want. But that's when, that's only when we have meditated on the word of God, drawing from its riches like a tree planted by streams of water, constantly being nourished so that we obey it. And that's what happens when we obey as a result of this. We prosper in whatever we do. Because that is the nature of God's word and God's promises and God's instruction. When we do it his way, rather than our way, there is blessing, there's prosperity. Now, of course, we can get into let's define prosperity because it's not always let's get it's not always getting lots of money. Prosperity is much more than that. So <clears throat> we can see here that there is a there is a spiritual dynamic to God's word. We see from both of these passages that goes beyond this quantitative 
desire that we have when, when we approach science or uh, anything else. We, we want to understand it, quantify, quantify it, measure it. And okay, man's words, they just have influence. But now we step into this spiritual arena, if you will, in which God's word goes beyond the natural because the spirit of God is speaking to our hearts and it changes, it transforms, it empowers. And this is not something that we can quantify. It's not something that we can calculate. It it goes beyond all of that. So I'm going to say there is a spiritual dynamic that God's Word has that our words do not, regardless of what this author has said to us that I read to you earlier, God's Word stands out far and away from our words. Okay? We can also see in uh, Psalm 119, so go to the right in your Bible, Psalm 119. This particular psalm speaks to the issue of God's Word with every verse. Every verse speaks of the precepts of God, the commands of God, the words of God. And in, in verses, excuse me, in verse 11, it says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Now we can look at it at two different perspectives and I'm going to embrace both perspectives. I'm going to just let you know that right up front. The first perspective is that by knowing what God wants from me, I then can obey Him. So the more that the Word of God is in me, I will know what is right and what is wrong. But I believe this passage goes beyond just a knowledge of right and wrong. And it does speak to this issue of this spiritual dynamic, this power and authority of the Word of God in that by meditating on God's Word, hiding it in my heart, that it empowers me, just doesn't teach me right and wrong, it empowers me to do the right. Your Word have I hid in my heart, that I might have the power to not sin against you. I realize I added those words, but I did so because I believe this speaks from both of these perspectives. It tells me what's right and wrong, but it also empowers me to do the right. That happens when we meditate on God's Word. Hide it in your Word. And and, and I'm just going to lay something out here for you. Because this this, uh, lesson today, I'm hoping, leans more towards the application side of theology. And here's what I'm going to... Here's my challenge to you. If you have memorized verses of scripture I'm going to encourage you to continue to do that but here is my additional challenge to you go beyond that don't just memorize a verse or two here and there but memorize the entire context don't just memorize verses memorize chapters that's why I encourage you memorize someone memorize the whole thing all six verses um I would encourage you to do it this way. Let's say you take the book of Ephesians. Awesome. Awesome book of the Bible. Six chapters. You sit down in one in one setting, sitting, you, you read all six chapters. The next day you come back and you read through all six chapters. The next day you come back and you read through all six chapters. Do this as for, for as long as you, you want. A couple of days, a week. Then go, then start reading 
each chapter one day each chapter now obviously if you can if it takes you 20 to 30 minutes to read six chapters hopefully you're going to spend more than just however many minutes reading one chapter so i'm going to encourage you dig into the chapter begin to ask questions why man when i was a kid that was my favorite word why but dad why why just because michael i hated that word those words just because i want to know why what now granted sometimes i ask the question uh, too much and and i'll, I'll concede to that but I am a, a, a why question asker. Uh, and I'm going to encourage you, be a why question asker when you're reading the Word. Why? Ask the question, how? Get into when Peter is walking on water. What was probably going through his thoughts? How would I have felt at this point? That's going to, that might give me, uh, understanding the emotional setting a little bit more, what he is now experiencing when he's crying out to Jesus for help because it seems so ironic. Well, Jesus just come, just asked me to come to you. Why would he even ask him? I'm just, why doesn't he just step out on the boat and do it? Maybe there's a principle here. God commands we don't just operate under presumptuous faith we we oper- faith operates on the command of god okay and as you meditate on this <clears throat> as you're stepping into peter's sandals if you will trying to understand what's going on it gives you a broader understanding and why he might ask the questions that he does and now as you're asking all of these questions, instead of taking six minutes to read a chapter, it's now taking you the same amount of time to read one chapter as it is taking to read six chapters. So you do that, and you read one chapter at a time. And you might go back and read one chapter at a time. Maybe a couple of, a couple of times. If you do it three times, and there's six chapters, that has now taken you how many days? Help me out with the math here. Say that again. Six chapters, uh-huh. and you're doing it three times. For each chapter. For each. You're, I'm going to just tell you, it's 18 days. Well, it's still really early in the morning. Some of us missed our cup of coffee. That's what it was. But he, here we are now, 18 days, and most of us, we read through a book in the Bible in maybe a few days, or maybe just one day. Awesome. But now, 18 days, can you imagine the insights and the ministry of God's Spirit as, as you're going deeper? You know, John, the book of John. Simple book to read and glean, and I'm using that word purposely, glean insights from, okay? It, it, even a non-believer can glean insights, especially as they're hitting chapters 3 and 4 and the gospel message there. They can come to Christ through the influence of the Spirit, of course, um, but I tell you what, someone like myself, and I've known the Lord for over 35 years, the book of John is so, so profound. Mm-hmm. And, and as I study it, <clears throat> and it takes me, honestly, far more than half an hour to go through a chapter, it, it, as you get into it, there's more insight and more insight, and the depths of this book are incredible and awesome. And as you do this now... With the, with the book of Ephesians, you're going to find with each sitting down that there's more. And then there's more and more. And you're wondering, where is the bottom to this? And, and I'm going to be honest with you, after 35 years of voraciously studying the word, I've yet to find the bottom. I don't think I'm ever going to find it. 
And if I do, my heart will be filled with pride, and then the Spirit of God will need to convict me. No, Mike, you're still scratching the surface, honestly. So awesome. So for me, this is an adventure. How many of you, when you were a kid, loved exploring caves and all of that? Oh man, awesome! We were, my dad. We were at uh, Rockford Park, and there were just boulders that had rolled down this hill. And while the guys were running cross country on this two mile course that my dad my dad coached the team uh, me and my brothers we would explore these caves and we wouldn't just explore them once we would literally explore them hundreds of times it was awesome and we'd play hide and seek in them and loved it loved it I love exploring and that is how I feel when I am studying the word I'm exploring the depths of the mind and the heart of God and there is still more to be explored. So, as you're going through this book of Ephesians, chapter by chapter, now you go back, after doing that 18 days, now or however many days you do it, now you go back and you divide it into paragraphs. Okay, so if you were able to read the book of Ephesians in 30 minutes, and it's six chapters, you would probably be able to read a paragraph in a minute or two. So that's not going to work. You need to spend more time letting the Word of God percolate. So what do you do? You ask more questions. You use cross-references. And there's certain study tools that you can get that I'm going to encourage you. Use those later. Let the Spirit of God speak to you before you allow man to speak to you, okay? Always do that. Don't let man be your teacher up front. Always the Word of always the Spirit of God, okay? And so, but I'm not saying discount man's words by any means. But it has a place. And, and it's in the back seat, okay? With Jesus being the driver, you're listening to him, you're receiving instructions from him, and then you can get advice and counsel from men, okay? Um, never, ever take me as your pastor's word for it. Don't ever do that. The Bereans didn't do that, and they were commended for it. They listened to what Paul says, and they searched the scriptures to see if these things were so, Acts 17. And so that's what I'm going to encourage you to do. So let the Spirit of God teach you, but now you're doing it paragraph by paragraph. And there's a couple of paragraphs per chapter. And as you do that, you're getting the Word into you more and more. And then after you've done that, and you've probably literally spent several months, several months, just on one book of the Bible, that's a lot. Now memorize it. And here's what you're going to find. You're going to find it easy to memorize it. If my RAM, my short-term memory, is like really short. It is hard for me to memorize. Some people, they just read something once. And especially if it's music, that's even harder for me. For them, it's easier. It blows my mind. They'll sing a song one time and have the entire song memorized. When I was in chorus in high school, this guy next to me, he would, ah, it would frustrate me. Sing the song one or two times, he had it memorized. Guy who was in my wedding, Michael Spaniel, same thing. Very gifted in music. I, I just can't do that. I'm not as gifted, I guess. It's, it's even harder for me to memorize. But as you, for me, memorization, is, it's hard work. But when I started doing this, memorizing became easy. I was amazed. I'm just going to offer that tool to you. Not just chapters of the Bible, okay? Books of the Bible. Memorizing books of the Bible. There are people who have the entire New Testament memorized. 
Maybe even the entire Bible. Amazing. And they can quote verses to you. And there's just a richness of the Word of God in them. Okay, I need to move on because I've got only 15 minutes and still quite a bit left to go. So, Psalm 119.11 and then... Whoop, excuse me for a second here. Verses 9 and 10 of that same psalm. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. I do not, do not let me stray from your commands. Again, living, that, living according to God's word is going to require the aid of the Spirit. And I believe, again, two perspectives here. It's not just teaching me what's right and wrong. It empowers me to do the right and not do the wrong. John 15.3, write that down. John 15.3 and Ephesians 5.26. These, Jesus says um, that you are already pure or clean by the washing of the word. Husbands, we are encouraged metaphorically to wash our wives with the word. Ephesians 5.26 So Jesus has washed us with the word. Husbands, wash your wives with the word. In other words, be a couple that's in the word. Sharpen one another. And husband, take that primary responsibility upon yourself to be the one who leads in this. The word of God washes. That is the power of the word. It washes as you meditate on the Word, you want to have victory over sin? Victory, guys especially, but ladies as well? Victory over lust? Victory over greed? Victory over worry? There's some worry words, okay? In the body of Christ. And sometimes I can be that. When my family is away, that is the hardest for Or when I'm away from my family. That is really hard. My wife and daughter were away for five days. That is always hard for me. And, and the enemy knows this, and there are just certain points in which, like, especially as I'm laying down at night and your mind is trying to settle, if you're not careful, your thoughts can become a playground and you, the enemy can attack me with worries. And, okay, then I'm just going to pray. And I, in my prayer, if you're not careful, prayer can actually stir up worries. If you're going to, because prayer has to be done in faith, okay? It's not just words. It's not just an expression of your worry. Oh, Lord, please. Please, Lord God. No, it's, it, pray it in faith. God, this is what I'm asking you to do. And then allow God to settle your heart. But the Word of God, quoting Scripture, for Jesus, he quoted Scripture three times, at least that we have recorded, and it says, here's something awesome. And the devil left him for a season. How many of you would love to have the devil leave you yes. for a season, or maybe even longer? How long is a season? At least in our culture, it's four months. But wouldn't that be, or three months, wouldn't that be awesome? No temptations for three months? Now, I'm not sure that the word season there is meant that way. It's meant for a, a period of, undesignated period of time. Okay, I'll concede that. But wouldn't that be awesome in which the devil is not riding you with such a, 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 an amount of, of temptations? 
awesome because the word of God dwelt richly in Jesus. I'm going to say it this way. The word of God dwelt richly in the word of God because Jesus is the word of God. He is that expression of the Father that's the exact representation of who the Father is. But no man has seen the Father and lived. We see Jesus. We read about Jesus. We hear what He did and said and it impacts us by the Spirit of God. So, what I'm saying is that the Word of God, it cleanses, it washes. When we want to have victory over sin, feast on the Word. Feast on it. Let it percolate down in you. Don't just give it a cursory reading. Study it. Meditate on it. Think about it. Here's something that one person taught me years and years ago. He said, do this. Just take one verse. And go through that verse many, many times. But each time you go through it, emphasize the next word. Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. What are the implications of that? It's God's word, not man's. Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not. Your word have I. I'm going to put two words together there, okay. Your word have I. Okay, this is me. This is my responsibility. Your word have I hidden. Wow, what is that word? Do you see what I'm doing now? Mm -hmm. It's forcing you in the context of the entire verse, and it's helping you memorize it, by the way. It's forcing you to focus on the, the, the depths of just that particular word. Your word have I hidden. And as we do this, we allow ourselves an opportunity to plumb even greater depths in the Word. And it also helps us to memorize it. Okay. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to touch on Matthew 4, 1 through 11, but I want you to turn to Ephesians six seventeen. So as you're turning to Ephesians six seventeen, and you'll need to write that down because it's not in your notes. Ephesians six seventeen. Matthew 4, I mentioned to you, is that testing ground that Jesus has with the enemy, with his adversary, our adversary, Satan, the accuser, the devil. It is worth noting that every time that that temptation comes, Jesus doesn't just say, I rebuke you, devil. I rebuke you, devil. But he quotes Scripture. They all come from Deuteronomy, but he quotes Scripture. Scripture, in the fray of battle, is our power and authority. There is a spiritual dynamic to it in the midst of temptation. People, when we are tempted, Satan or his demons are using these things, objects, thoughts, to tap into our flesh, our fleshly desires. And when we concede to those desires and embrace that temptation, we then sin. I'm going to encourage you, in the midst of that temptation, if Satan is subject to the authority of God's Word, then quote Scripture. That is what Jesus did. And Satan left him for a season. So the Word of God is seen as powerful and authoritative in this context, not just by purifying and washing our mind, 
but as a sword of the Spirit. Ephesians 6.17 The word... The, let, let me look at it here. It, it says, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit is not a defensive piece of armor or equipment. It is offensive. It is for you to be on the aggressive, not in retreat. There is no armor here for the backside. We are confronting the enemy, sword in hand, shield in the other, deflecting every flaming arrow of the evil one, so that the man of God may stand. So that you, woman of God, man of God, may stand, stand firm, not move. This is the purpose of the Word of God. This is the purpose of the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. It's for the aggressive soldier. And we are all called to be aggressive soldiers, warriors. The enemy comes at us, we don't run away, we run to the fray, we run to the battle. A little expression I learned years ago, run to the roar. You know, it's interesting, the, the male lion, he stands in the field and he gets up and with his big mane he looks ferocious his teeth he growls very loudly and what do the antelope do? Do they run at him? No. They run in the opposite direction towards this opening in the trees through the, through the field into another field but guess who's waiting in that little opening for the next field? ready to devour them and the roar causes them to run right into the trap their death and so I use this little expression run to the roar when the enemy comes to attack you you have the full armor of God on don't run away don't cower from him because the word of God the sword of the spirit is what will slay him and we see that in Matthew 4 three times Jesus quoted from Scripture for three temptations and the devil gave up. The devil left him for a season. That is the power and the authority of the Word. Now, again, let's realize that this is not a formula. And and I, I shy away from this word formula because it empties it of the spiritual dynamic, the spiritual power, the power of the Spirit then, if you will. The... Okay, the word of God. We don't just quote the word of God as if, well, if I just quote it three times, then I'll be good. No, because it's something that we quote from our heart, not just from our mind. We quote it as with authority. Um, how many of you have ever seen policemen as they are learning how to stop and direct traffic? Um, I say learning because there's typically one guy. He's the veteran. And he takes a handful of rookie cops and he teaches them how to do it. So here you go, you have a rookie cop and he comes up and a little bit of fear because he's standing in the middle of traffic going 45 miles an hour and the light does not turn yellow and then red, okay? It is him standing in the middle of the traffic with his hand up, tweeting on his little whistle. (laughs) And you can only imagine his hand coming up Stop. You know, and, and here, so the veteran comes up and kind of looks at him with this little scowl. I'm sorry, you wimp. 
That's not how you do it. And he stands up there with this sense of authority. And yeah. he puts his hand up. And he blows his whistle and blows the eardrums out of the, the, the driver of the first car. And he comes to a screeching halt. And he will not hit that veteran officer. Why? He's, got this, he's using the same sign language. He's using the same whistle. Okay, maybe not the same exact whistle. That would be gross. Yeah. But he's using the same kind of whistle. But he is standing there with authority and with confidence. So when we're speaking the word of God, we do so in its authority, not some wimpy authority. Please, devil, don't beat up on me. No. Rebuke the devil, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. Jesus resisted him with the word of God. And with such confidence, boldness, faith. Because he knew what the word of God would do. So... Memorize the word, use it in battle. Romans 1, ah, really? Okay, one second here. Hmm. Romans 1.16 says that the, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. I don't know about you, that, that kind of relieves me a little bit of the responsibility when I'm witnessing to change someone's heart. Because it is not my craftiness or skill or intellectual prowess or ability to wield words so eloquently that's going to change the heart. That will not. It might, it might change the heart for a while. That's an emotional depth. And I, I, that's not what I'm looking for. The Word of God, Romans 1.16 says, that the Gospel, what you are saying, the truth of the Gospel, that is the power of God that is so transforming in its nature that it brings life. It is the power of God unto salvation. That's what will stir up change and bring life to that person as they respond in faith. And it does so unto salvation. It's not how well you present it. Though if you present it in a way that's very garbled, now you've garbled the gospel, that's always going to be hard to understand. Remove the stumbling blocks. Learn to share the gospel so that there aren't any hindrances. I heard from a worship leader one time, our goal in leading worship is not to be so skilled, but our goal is to get rid of the distractions. The bass player making mistakes, or the lead guitarist making mistakes, or the drummer leading, or the lead vocalist making mistakes. Because the mistakes create distractions and draw our attention to the mistakes away from the God that we are worshiping. Just play the instrument, and, this, and worship ushers us into his presence. And <clears throat> so I'm just going to encourage you, memorize some scripture verses, memorize a gospel outline, role play the gospel, and just feel comfortable sharing the gospel. But understand this, that it is the gospel of God that transforms hearts. Mm-hmm. Not how well you present it, not how eloquently you might speak. Every single person here can learn the, the gospel and be able to share it, and, and especially in the context of your own testimony. 
And you, you do not have to be a great speaker. You do not, you don't even have to be a good speaker. Just someone who can communicate. You know what? Sorry, but God used a donkey to communicate truth and it brought conviction. God can use us. Amen? Amen. And so, I'm just going to submit that to you. The gospel is the power of God and salvation. And then I'm just going to close with this. Okay, yeah, Romans, uh, excuse me, John, John 8. There's one other passage I wanted to get to. Awesome passage of Scripture for us. Um, and in John 8, I hate to do this. Can I just go five minutes over? Yeah. Five minutes over here. Or, or take five more minutes. That's going to put me seven minutes past. I don't like doing that, but... If we could. It says in John 8.30, it says, verse 30, it says, even as he spoke, this is Jesus, even as he spoke, I know it's Jesus because the verse before is in red. Just saying. Okay, even as he spoke, many put their faith. What does your translation say? Many put, many put their faith in him. In him. Verse 31. To the Jews who believed him. Do you see the difference? It does not say to the Jews who, who had believed in him. And that's why Jesus says what he does next. Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Once you're my disciples, then it says this, then you will know the truth. This isn't just an intellectual assent or a memorization of the words. It is not surfacy or superficial. This is truly knowing and grasping and understanding and allowing it to transform. Knowing the truth, just as we might know Jesus. Not know about Him, but know Jesus. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. How many times have you seen in a movie from Hollywood? Just tell the truth. Just tell the truth. Because the truth will set you free. I'm sorry, but telling the truth will not set you free. There's an element of confession that James 5 talks about that's very important. But just simply telling the truth did not set one free. Because Jesus later on is the Jews there who believed Jesus but did not believe in Jesus begin to argue with him. And they say, we are not slaves of anyone. And Jesus says, excuse me. And if you look at verse 36, he rebuts them. And... Excuse me, I... Lost my place here. How did I get to chapter 11? Here we go. All right. We'll look at uh, verse 34. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. This is what he was getting at. So then in verse 36, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The Son sets us free through the truth. And that is for those who are disciples, for those who have made this decision to hold to his teaching and not reject it. That's the distinguishing factor between believing in Jesus and believing Jesus. The Jews believe Jesus. 
And so to those who just believed in him, he says this and he challenges them and he says, you're a slave to sin and it is only my truth that will set you free. And lastly, I want us to look at Isaiah 55. So turn to Isaiah 55. Talks about how God's ways are higher than our ways, His thoughts than our thoughts. And Isaiah 55, verse 11 through 13 says, So is my word. Yeah, let me read verse 10. Let me read verse 10. Take it a little bit more in the context. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth, that is, without first watering the earth and making it blood, bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and eventually, I'm adding that word, bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. The scriptures that has come out of his mouth that are recorded here for us and are even these very words I'm reading to you now. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. So as the rain comes down, waters, produces seed, and even bread. That's its goal. That's the goal of the rain before it goes back up. God's word, as it is spoken, will accomplish every good thing and every good intention in the heart of God and will never return empty. That is the power of God's Word. It accomplishes exactly what is in the heart of God. You will go out as a result of this. You will go out in joy. Not sadness. Not depression. Not with a heavy heart that's weighed down. But with joy. And be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush. This is you and me. The thorn bush. Instead of the thorn bush, will grow the pine tree, an evergreen. And instead of briars, thorns, thistles, I've got one of these in the corner of my house. And I just trimmed it. It is always a battle for me. They have inch-long spikes that tear at my flesh. I hate it. I hate And I, I have leather gloves. I need to wear a leather bodysuit and a leather mask if I could, all right, to protect me. Because after I'm done, my kids look at me and say, Daddy, what happened? I'm literally, there's blood dripping down my arms and legs because there's branches everywhere that I'm cutting and it falls and it brushes up against my skin and it cuts me. This is the briars, the thorn bush. But instead of that, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown. His renown, His fame, His honor, His glory for an everlasting sign which will not be destroyed. What is this sign? It is the sign of you and me being transformed by the Word of God that will not return empty but accomplish every intention of the heart of God. The Word of God transforms us from the thorn bush into the pine tree, the myrtle, excuse me, the briar into the myrtle. This will be as an everlasting sign and will never be destroyed. That sign is a changed life, a transformed life by the power of the gospel, by the word of God that sets us free. God's truth. Let's pray. Father, I ask you that you would take these words of truth from your word. And, and just this, throughout this coming week, show us the power, the real 
day-by-day demonstrative power and authority of your word. Let it be life to us. Let it encourage us, making us active, discerning our thoughts and intents, laying us open where we may need to repent, washing us, empowering us, setting us free, imparting life where the enemy has brought destruction, wounds that still need to be healed. Let the truth of your word do this for us, God. And this week, would you personally show us both the power and the authority of your word? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.